welcome fellow traveller to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. Greetings, friends, and welcome to Tent Talks with Stephen Backhouse. And no, in fact, I am not Stephen Backhouse. My name is Bradley Jersak. I'm a friend of the show, a friend of Stephen, and I'm also the Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick, Canada. And I am a core faculty member of the Institute for Religion, Peace and Justice. And you can check us out at irpj.org if you'd consider coming to study with us, or at least finding out what we're about. So I've just released a new book called Out of the Embers, and the subtitle is Faith After the Great Deconstruction. In that book, I'm addressing this overly trendy word that causes me to twitch sometimes, but it is rather a movement right now, and that can range. It's a very big umbrella. You have voluntary, involuntary, liberating, traumatic, you name it, it's getting called deconstruction. And I wanted to address it. And the way I did that was I came in as sort of a third voice. I see one extreme response to that is the hand-wringing pastors so full of anxiety. They're worried everyone is losing their faith, and this must be a bad word. And on the other hand, I'm a little bit overdosed on the probably uh, overly enthusiastic pom-pom waving cheerleader deconstructionists who've made an industry of this and I want to come in with a different angle that says folks are having different and disorienting experiences and every story needs to be heard so probably empathy is a much better way to come at this. One part of my book includes what I call seven sleepers who are the great deconstructionists in history. And one of those is Kierkegaard. And of course, that led me to check in with Stephen because he's my Kierkegaard expert. And thank God I did because he he corrected some elements of my book that would have been just mistaken without his help. So thanks, Steve. One thing that he's also helping me do is, is let you know about the book but not just by promoting the book, but rather through having a series of four interviews with significant people and in very different worlds, where I'm gonna ask them a series of questions that relate to deconstruction. So, uh, first of all, I'll tell you what my questions are going to be. And just a heads up, the actual conversations are going to be fairly organic and free-flowing so you won't necessarily be able to identify all these questions as they come at you but I will sneak them into every interview so first of all I'm going to ask each one of our guests a definition question it will be something like um, what is the word deconstruction what does it mean to you We recognize it's popularly used today. It's become a catchphrase. It covers a range of experiences and understood this way. uh, One may experience a process of disorientation and reorientation, and that can be perilous, but it can also hold possibilities. So to my guest, I will ask in your world, what other words or metaphors might best describe this phenomenon? What might that look like in the communities you work with? 
And could you give me some examples of pitfalls or breakthroughs that are most welcome? That's a bit about definition. Then I'll talk about the past. I mentioned that in Out of the Embers, I appeal to key voices from the past. Some of mine are Moses, Plato, the Cappadocian Fathers, Voltaire and Nietzsche, are great frenemies, and then Dostoevsky, Kierkegaard, and my favorite, Simone Weil. But I'm going to ask each of the uh, interviewees in their personal experience, who have been their most trusted influences? And that could be historically or recently, uh, famous people, but also, you know, private lives where they've experienced someone as, let's say, a therapist, a pastor, maybe a spiritual director or a companion in the way. And how have those guides shaped their own journey? And so that could include the voices that they've really internalized and and now who sort of guide them along the way from the inside. So that's about the past. So we've got the definition, we've got the past, then the present. In the communities that my interviewees represent and serve, I think it's fair to say there's significant crises afoot. And so I'm going to ask them to tell us about what's presenting most intensely at this moment in their community and how we might best address these challenges, both the communities themselves, but also uh, those who would love to be better allies in those communities. And so part of this present question and the pressing moment question is going to include this element. Assuming that one aspect of deconstruction includes detachment, alienation, or even exclusion from one's previous family or community, where do we begin to find a renewed sense of belonging, healthy attachment, and trusted community so that we're not just going this alone? So we've got definition, past, present, and of course that then invites us to ask our guests about the future. I'm going to ask them this question. Based on your observations and intuitions, what do you foresee or suspect we need to prepare for down the road in the next few decades, for example? And in Stephen Backhouse's words, what is being baked into our future right now? And how can we begin to respond in healthy ways rather than just with uh, knee-jerk reactions that are, you know, pretty much the length of of a news cycle or based in our own fear or you know, wounding, what, what's a good response to what we see forthcoming? So that's the four questions I'm going to look at with each of our guests. In this week's episode, we're going to talk to Pastor Brian Zahn. He runs a very large church in St. Joseph, Missouri, called Word of Life Church. You can visit them at wolc.com. And in my opinion, Brian Zond is an excellent pastor who has been faithful over the long haul. Unlike people like me, he has not had a big crash. He has been able to just move forward. So I'll relate to him a little bit about that. But also, you know, he's He's become somewhat of a national prophet in America, specifically, against Christian nationalism. And he has been a voice of reason in an age of where, where patriotism and militarism have been central to the Christian brand in a way that's really tainted the church. And he has stood in the midst of that through the fire. It's quite amazing. He's a dear friend. 
I think he's, he's one of the better preachers in, in my continent anyway, and also a profound Dylanologist. So if you like Bob Dylan, um, you're going to hear Bob Dylan cited in virtually every, every time Brian opens his mouth somehow. He also runs these prayer schools that are fascinating and really effective for those who are emerging out of whatever spiritual cocoon you've been in and said, if I came back to prayer again, what would that be like? So I'm going to ask Brian all those four questions and uh, we're looking forward to that talk. I'm here with my friend Brian Zahn, Pastor Brian Zahn of Word of Life Church down in St. Joseph, Missouri. And we're here to talk a little bit about deconstruction, or I should say beyond deconstruction, really, in your case. And so I have a few questions I want to lay out for you, and you just riff as you like. Sure. Um, First of all, that word deconstruction, uh, in your world, in your story, I'm wondering what other words and metaphors might best describe the phenomenon. And of course, I'm referring to your book, Water to Wine in principle, but uh, what might that look like in you and your communities that you work with? Yeah, my own experience with a critical rethinking of Christian faith in midlife predates the vernacular term deconstruction. (laughs) I mean, I couldn't go through deconstruction because it wasn't a thing yet. I mean, where to start? Well, I'll say that what happened with me was I just, you know, I reached the point in life, it really was, you know, pretty much entering my 40s, that I just, I had this growing sense of unease that I needed to find a better Christianity. I mean, what I what I had was, it began with the Jesus movement, charismatic movement and just sort of grew with that i mean in that particular milieu and you know by the time think of it you know coming into the 21st century i'm coming into my 40s and it just seemed it just seemed thin accommodated too american too consumerist and so i had to go on a search for something better and it was it was hard because i didn't know where to look <laughs> i was so ensconced in my own world that i mean you know theoretically objectively i knew that there was a world beyond what i what i had experienced but i didn't know how to get there and so i just had to work that out and i did i never would have called it deconstruction even if that term uh was in use then because it just didn't feel like that. I mean, I know everyone's experience is different and no one, I mean, I'm not saying mine is the way to do it. That's not, that's not my point at all. I'm just saying for me, the only negative aspect, and it was a significant negative is that in finding a richer, deeper, more historic, more connected to the great tradition, Christianity, and finding that which was delightful, it's changing me. And I was doing this very publicly as a pastor, and I thought that maybe there might be some people that might not totally be into it. I didn't think it was going to be like more than a thousand people that would end up leaving. And that was, that. of course, that was terribly painful. So for me, it was this, it was the best of times, worst of times, to borrow from Dickens. 
that truly what I was finding through, you know, I haven't really even said what it was I was finding. I was just, I was finding the best of Christian conversation about God revealed in Christ, which is one way of talking about theology and also finding the great tradition and, you know, something more rooted, more historic. That was joy. That was a delight. I was like, where have you been all my life? But then the pain came by being misunderstood. And and people, you know, he he's, he's gone liberal, which I don't know what I don't I mean, I guess that's the only way they could process it. But it didn't feel like that to me or, you know, BZ's backslidden, which that one really baffled me and hurt because I thought, man, I feel like I'm making more progress in being faithful to Christ and really in, dis- in discovering Christ than ever in my life. So so the the metaphor that I went to was water to wine. That I was at the party, the wine was running out. I was afraid the party might be over, and then Jesus showed up and did a miracle and turned the water to wine. And it's it was my born again again experience. I had a very dramatic conversion in my teen years, and I would say I had an equally equally dramatic conversion in my forties. And uh, I mean, both of them were were surprising. And they they surprised my friends. They surprised people. They I was I was the most surprised, but they were both wonderful. The only thing is, the second one came when I was already connected to a whole church movement, all of that, and and it it provided opportunity for people to misunderstand and then to malign, and that's where the pain came from. And by the way, I just want to say to those that are seeing this or hearing this. Uh, the pain is, and I'm not just putting a brave face on it. It's true. The pain is gone now. I mean, you know, Brad knew me back then, at least as I was somewhat into this journey, and he he knows that you know it was painful because I would share it with him, and Perry would sh- Perry Perry was is more forthcoming about these things. I tend just to hide them, but Perry was more forth. That's my wife, Perry. She was more forthcoming about the pain we were going through. But really, we don't feel that pain anymore. We have the scars, but you know how scars are. They don't hurt anymore. They just tell a story. So I can show you the scars and tell the story, but it's it's not painful anymore. So I'm, I'm rambling here, Bradley. You better reel me in. Well, I like what you're saying in the, in the sense that you're making it clear that deconstruction wasn't the best word for you because, first of all, Jesus was the primary agent of right. your change, right? You, it was him converting you. and. I'm personally attracted to the person of Jesus. So this isn't something that's drawing you away from, from faith in Christ. It's actually, uh, he's the one changing you. It's a transformation experience from water to wine, both in you personally, but also in your community. I was able to make that critical distinction between being profoundly disappointed with the Christianity I knew and still being utterly fascinated by Christ himself. I mean, I understand that that may not be everybody's experience, but for me, that's what it was. And I, I was able to maintain that distinction. I really didn't go through a crisis of faith regarding Christ. I don't, I don't, if, if I had any of that kind of doubt that was really dealt with a decade or more earlier in the nineties, I had some moments of I don't know, you know, just 
kind of the run of mill doubts. Is it is, is is all of this true? You know, does God exist? Is is Jesus who Christians claim him to be? And I, I went through that pretty secretly uh in the 90s. And so that was kind of behind me. And what I was really dealing with was uh I just the Christianity I knew just seemed too well. I I I would later refer to it as easy, cheesy, cotton candy Christianity. And I just had to find something better. And I did. And you did. So I mean at, at that crossroads, there's several crossroads you've mentioned, but I guess there's some pitfalls and or breakthroughs that can happen at that. Is what what would you regard as a as a pitfall for someone who's making that faith shift? <clears throat> I, I first of all, I'm not I'm not interested in trying to correct or scold anyone. I don't, that's not my heart. I, I don't, I hope I don't come across that way. Deconstruction has become the term. I mean, I don't know exactly how that happened, but it, that's what we use to describe this increasingly common phenomenon of people questioning whether they can continue to hold on to Christianity as they have known it because of various things that have scandalized them. Maybe Christianity corrupted by civil religion, by consumerism, by clerical abuse, and those sorts of things. So I understand that that, that's may, that may be how some of this begins. And deconstruction is a term that's been borrowed from Jacques Derrida, although I don't know that there's a real strong connection between what Jacques Derrida means by deconstructing texts and what – isn't this mostly an evangelical phenomenon? I think so. I mean, not entirely. Yeah. But but the evangelical phenomenon of – I don't know if Christianity is going to work for me anymore, and, and, they start, and things start falling away, and we're going to see if there's anything left when we're done – uh, I don't know. There's a, there is some connection between what Derrida means by deconstruction and what an evangelical means by deconstruction, but they're not entirely the same. Yeah. Well, okay, well I, 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 I'm just nervous that because I want to be careful because I'm not. I don't want to judge it, but I don't want to. I'm nervous about it being too negative. That the project is to deconstruct because deconstruction can't be the end game. At some point. There has to be some sort of positive. See, that's that's why I wouldn't have ever called what I went through. It was certainly a crisis, but I was searching for something better that I believed was there to be found if I could only find it. Yeah. Rather than okay, this is this is crap. <laughs> like okay, but I didn't want to spend the rest of my life just talking about how crap aspects of evangelicalism and charismatic Christianity are. I just thought, well, you know, that's that's a game that has no positive or beneficial end. I, I just, and I, I think maybe part of it was, and let's be honest, I was doing this as a pastor. And so, and, and I, and I wanted to remain a pastor and so I wasn't looking just to see how negative I could be about Christianity and the church. I, I wanted to be able to salvage what I could. So I approached it more carefully, I think. Good. You know, I, which is a good lead into my next question, because um, in terms of approaching it more carefully, uh, you know me and I know you enough that that 
we've listened to voices that we felt would help us. So I want to spend a few minutes talking about that in your personal experience. Who've been your most trusted influences historically or recently? uh, Guides who've shaped your own journey. And it could include voices you've most internalized, including great names from the past or personal mentors on the way. Um, I, I, I I will just remind you that I've never heard you preach without Dylan. So I imagine that's one of them, but him, how, why him and who else? Uh, well, we'll start with Dylan. Um, I don't know. I mean, Bob Dylan captured my imagination when I was 15 years old and he's just provided the soundtrack for my life. Whether someone likes him or not, that's not the point. The point is they just don't hand out those Nobel prizes willy-nilly. <laughs> and that, you know, the Nobel committee decided give this man a I mean, you know, lots of people win Grammys, whatever. <laughs> a Nobel prize for literature that the, that his body of work rises to that level. And I think it does. I think it's entirely worthy. Dylan is, uh, you know, he'll, he will be studied for a very long time. And one of the things I notice about Dylan, and I, this is kind of a new thought, that he bursts onto the scene and he's kind of seen as this radical protest singer. And you you would think of him maybe as liberal or progressive and there's there were aspects of that you know he was critical of the vietnam war and some things like this and he was a very powerful voice uh against racial injustice in america i mean he was he sang and stood you know a few feet away from martin luther king jr on when he gave the i have the dream speech in washington dc so he was there in that but if you look at his whole body of work and really where he's coming from he strikes me as a very as a man who's rooted in very old traditions, both his Jewish faith and his Christian faith, and and both are within him. You know, uh, if you tell if you tell Dylan that you have to choose between being a Jew and a Christian, he'll probably just look at you and give you a look <laughs> that you don't want to receive. But uh, yeah, he's both, and he seems to be a. a he he. There are times when he almost sounds like someone that's pre-modern, and I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a line. Uh, let me see if I can get it here. And it's from "It's All Right, Ma." I'm only bleeding. Disillusioned words like bullets bark as human gods aim for their mark. Make everything from toy guns that spark to flesh-colored Christ that glow in the dark. It's easy to see without looking too far that not much is really sacred. And so I think he, in some ways, is a very powerful prophetic voice in the critique of modernity. And I, he, he's not doing it intentionally. It's just, you know, how does the prophetic work? The, the prophetic and the poetic are very related. And in Dylan, they're almost indistinguishable at times. So Dylan provides maybe just sort of an ethos, a kind of a, a feeling language but as far as someone being more specifically a guide if, for me it's uh, Dostoevsky stands out Dostoevsky shows up in out of the embers and in, in wonderful serious ways that I deeply appreciate I just stumbled onto Dostoevsky I, I didn't I didn't read Dostoevsky early on like in my 20s and 30s even though I did read a lot of classic liturgy I just hadn't got to the Russians and I just sort of stumbled onto 
Dostoevsky at the beginning of my water to wine journey. So it was kind of happened at the same time. And, the, and I started with his masterpiece. I mean, I just, I started with the brothers Karamazov and whew, he, he's one of the, he's one of the Mount Rushmore figures. He's one of the, he's really important for me. I'm not, you know, for me he is. And he well, here's here's the thing. Here's the thing, Brad. Tell me what you think about this. I just this is kind of a new thought. The reason that deconstruction, the great deconstruction, as you call it, we've had great awakenings and now we have the great deconstruction, is is a thing. I wonder how much of it is that the challenges to Christian faith that were faced by the intellectuals from the Enlightenment all the way through the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, are now facing all of us. I mean, the issues that, that quite frankly, I mean, a lot of those issues were only being grappled with by intellectuals. But now it's burst beyond that realm, and all of us have to deal with the same. Well, so so... Dostoevsky was dealing with the challenges to Christian faith that are part of modernity, what, what, 150 years ago. And he was writing about it, but in the in the form of novels. So he's a guide. He, he, he's gone through it before us. I mean, I mentioned earlier, people are scandalized by a Christianity corrupted by civil religion, you know, Christian nationalism, things like that. Uh, consumerism, we see that for sure. And uh, clerical scandals, for sure, we see that in other forms of abuse. But I, but I don't know that we spend enough time just talking about the inherent challenge that modernity presents to Christian faith, because at the heart of modernity is simply the philosophy of, philosophy of materialism. And by materialism, I'm not meaning, you know, uh, consumerism and greed for things, although they might be somewhat related. I mean, philosophical materialism, where the only thing that's world, real is the physical world, uh, that which can be empirically verified through sense knowledge. That's really at the heart of the philosophy of modernity. And it's a, it's a direct assault upon faith. I mean, it's it's that's what it is. I think this was a challenge that was faced mostly by intellectuals and thinkers and that sort of kind of, I mean, so, you know, it's the battleground with Nietzsche and Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky and Schopenhauer and whoever else. Now it's just, everybody has to deal with it. Yeah. And so that's why, that's why I actually think that books like out of the embers it's so needed so important because we're we're we are modernity is going to demand of christians that they fight a certain battle that they may not be equipped for and pop apologetics is no help to that at all that's that doesn't i, I almost started naming names of the pop apologists i decided i'll not do that but those those don't help at all those don't help at all. But we need we need people that understand the challenge, understand the questions, are honest about it, but say, look, you know, the church has been talking about this for a long time. And that's why I could go back to Dostoevsky. I mean, the things that are causing Christians to 
suddenly not believe anymore. There, Dostoevsky was dealing with that, you know, in the 1840s, 50s, 60s. And so he has something to say to us about this. And yeah. he's been really helpful to me. Yeah. I, now, just to repay the compliment, I, I see you talk about him. I see you talk about Kierkegaard. I see you talk about Nietzsche. These folks in in uh, When Everything's on Fire, which I love to think of as a box set with my book. Yeah, exactly. Uh, people should get that. Um, I didn't mention Hauerwas in my book at all, but I know he's been an influence on you. Uh, before we move on, is there anything you could give us by way of an elevator speech to his influence? Yeah, Stanley Hauerwas. He's a um, theologian. He's had long tenures at both uh, Notre Dame and Duke. He's pretty much retired now. He, he brings the best of Anabaptist theology from a from a man who's not Anabaptist. I mean, not officially, not technically. And he he will jokingly refer to himself as a high church uh, Mennonite, <laughs> which you know, if you don't know anything about, that's kind of a joke because you know there isn't a high church Mennonite, except maybe there is, and that is Harwas embodies and, and and as a thinker and theologian really is such a potent challenge to what may be the biggest corruption of Christian faith. It's been the great challenge for 17 centuries, and that is the capitulation to empire. When the church inhabits an empire that is not actively persecuting the church, but rather courting the church, it tends to be an almost, it seems like, irresistible temptation. And so it's from Hauerwas that I really began to learn that, I'll give you a line from him, the primary task of the church is to make the world the world. What he means by that is before the church sets out to save the world or change the world, the first task of the church is simply to be something other than the world <laughs> and to be something uh, something that is radically other and that we don't seek to advance our cause through the coercion of caesar's sword that is we don't we're not we're not grasping for political power to enforce some sort of change or belief upon the wider society and uh, I, I don't know that there's a theologian that I resonate more consistently with than um, Stanley Harwas. Maybe maybe Bradley Jerzak. <laughs> I was so hoping you'd say that. I've been jealous for months about that. Um, but like you've got us right into the heart of the, the next question now. Um, the way I worded it for myself is in the communities you represent and serve. And I would regard in your case, that is America. I know that you're an international speaker and writer as well, but there's something about your prophetic voice in America where you have discerned and already began to articulate the, the significant crises that are afoot right now. Maybe if you could reiterate or expand on what you think is, is presenting most intensely right at this moment and how we might best address those challenges. There's so many things I could say. I'm not even sure where to go with this. I've spent almost, not quite, but it's coming up on close to 20 years. It's not quite that long, but it's getting close, of being a critic of civil religion. And one of the things I've noticed that that for almost two decades, 
I would I would challenge Christian nationalism and who the people that I viewed as somewhat embodying Christian nationalism would say, no, that's not what we're doing. <laughs> this isn't Christian nationalism. And now they'll say, oh, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. So in one sense, it's very frustrating that, you know, you just have to kind of content yourself, let him who has ears to hear, hear. Uh, you don't feel like you're going to necessarily turn the whole tide or anything, but you 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 try to be, you just try to be faithful enough that those that are looking for something that is not corrupted, that is not completely infatuated with imperial power, can find something other. So, so that, you know, I, I do that and I've been doing that for a long time. I'm sort of tired of it. <laughs> I wish, I wish I could be done with it, but I can't because it, it, it continues to happen. Here's some, I, I, let's just, let's just go down this road for a second here. We've also been influenced by Walter Brueggemann. He's also a huge influence, kind of Brueggemann and Hirawas and Walter Brueggemann, when you're when you're at that stature, you can invent words. <laughs> and he talks about totalism, which I don't know that is a word, but it is now. And uh, he he talks about the totalism of empire, and he talks about it bril brilliantly. And but I want to go. I don't want to get into that. I've been thinking about the totalism of evangelicalism. Evangelicals at their worst, and and by the way, there's many worthy gifts that have come to us through evangelicalism. So I, I don't want to just say it's all been completely a failed experiment, although I have actually written that sentence in one of my books, that American evangelicalism is a failed experiment. It's probably true. I, I keep seeing this phenomenon. I see Christians in their 20s, 30s, whatever, something like that age group, have grown up in an evangelical context it's not working for them anymore for a number of issues. And there's, there's all kinds of issues, but they tend to, they say that they're done with evangelicalism and yet they still hold to the evangelical assumption that only evangelicalism is really Christianity. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you got the Catholics, you got the Orthodox, you got the mainliners, but we all know they're not real Christians. Now, see, that's, that's, evangelical arrogance at its worst. And yet I see people that evangelical Christianity evangelical style is no longer tenable, but they won't explore anything else. It's evangelicalism or bust. And so that's a lot of what I'm trying to do right now is I'm trying to get people to say, no, 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 no. There's, there's, there's a wide Christianity out there. I think one of my faults, but it's not my fault <laughs> is is my um my homelessness i'm a homeless christian i'm out there in my cardboard box you know and i'm homeless in that i'm not catholic i'm not orthodox i don't belong to a mainline protestant i'm not anglican i'm just nothing and i don't think that's good i don't think it's good to be homeless but i say it's not my fault it's just what happened it's just the way that it's played out for me but I've tried to do the best I can in that situation by becoming very respectful and visiting as many of these traditions as I can by visiting. I might mean literally showing up at some monastery or some other church, but I also mean uh, visiting by reading the very best of what is to be found in those various expressions of Christianity. 
and then and then I'm I'm trying to suggest to my and it's interesting, Brad. I never called myself an evangelical. I never did. I was a charismatic. I was a Jesus freak. <laughs> uh, but okay, so we we end up though still in that general world. I'm I'm trying to say to evangelicals evangelicals who think they're done with Christianity because they're done with evangelicalism. Oh, hold on. There, there is a rich, wide, and varied, vetted tradition of Christianity that you have completely not yet explored. Yeah, well, Mrs. Harper, down when we were in New Orleans, you know, she said to to leave the the evangelical faith or whatever faith without even investigating the Black Church in America right. exactly. is an act of white supremacy you know like yeah. so yeah yeah that would be a that's a that's a similar point yeah yeah so you know black churches aren't real churches and catholic churches aren't real churches and orthodox and anglican and mainliners aren't real churches well yeah they are if you can't bear your evangelical mega church anymore fine but don't don't say that that equals Christianity, that that encompasses the whole of Christianity. Don't go along with that. That's part of what you're frustrated with. So be frustrated with it and say, I'm no longer going to accept the assumption that only evangelicalism amounts to, quote, real Christianity. Yeah. Now, you mentioned being uh, homeless. Uh, one of the crisis, crises that I've, that I've been observing through this whole movement um, it includes detachment, alienation, and even exclusion from one's previous family, yeah. from their community of origin. And so they they become homeless um, in the sense of not even having community, and they really feel the aloneness at some point. Um, where do we begin to find a renewed sense of belonging, healthy attachment, trusted community? For people who are like, Brad, I, I hear you, but I'm alone now, and I don't even know where to go. What what do you think about that? Uh, I think a lot. I think about it a lot. First of all, I recognize that it's real. I, I mean, I I do, I do understand that. I, I think you know if if people that live in a big city, maybe they can find. But you know what? It doesn't. It doesn't always just work out that way. I mean, it's hard just to, you know, what are you going to do? Go through the alphabet of the churches, and you know that's hard. Kindness means a whole lot to me these days. There are kind churches, and you got to find them. If you don't feel kindness pretty quick within a particular community, I wouldn't spend much time there. Uh, I, I, would leave, I, I would leave there pretty quick. I think the fruit of the Spirit that seems to matter the most to me these days is kindness, mm -hmm. and we need that. I, I know this sense of loneliness and homelessness because I... I am a point at which a lot of people reach out to, especially pastors. So don't don't think this is only a phenomenon among lay people. Uh, pastors may feel it even more intensely oftentimes, the sense of, you know, just loneliness. They can't find anyone to walk. So I hear from them, yeah, you know, like like all the time. Let's just put it that way, all the time. I make it a priority to meet with all of them I can or Zoom with them or whatever. I do that really all the time. The other thing is, and I'm still nervous about this, but we have hundreds and hundreds of people who have become online members of Word of Life Church. I didn't, 
I was skeptical of this. I thought, you know, I've, I've got enough. I, I'm afraid that the ghost of Eugene Peterson will come haunt me at night. <laughs> and you know what I mean? Oh, I do. And, but, but then, you know, COVID comes along. I said, okay, well, you know, that's the only way we can do church for a while. But then I realized, and I started hearing the same kind of language as, as we would talk with people who were on Sunday mornings, they are, quote, attending, as it were, Word of Life Church via the internet. Now, I, can, I can critique what I think is wrong with this. And yet they would, I, I heard over and over and over, they would say, you've been a lifeline. Uh, I was almost done with Christianity, and I read Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. That they, they're almost always they find through my books. They mm -hmm. read one of those books, and then, you know, they find me on the internet. Oh, this guy has a church. This guy has a church. I don't like that kind of language. Uh, Brian Zahn is the pastor of Word of Life Church for 41 years now. So they tune in, and they like it, and they're fine. And it's keeping them in the faith. So it may not be the optimal way to do Christian community, but in times of crisis, maybe the optimal, I, I sometimes feel like Word of Life has become an intensive care unit for people. Mm -hmm. You don't want to live your life in intensive care necessarily, but when you need intensive care, you need ICU. You, you, you want that thing to be there. So I just say you f find life where you can. The, the internet works a couple of ways. You know, it's still pretty new, right? I mean, it's it's new. And I think it's because earlier I alluded to what was really a battle that was fought among intellectuals is now having to be fought at street level with everyone trying to maintain faith in this age. Mm -hmm. A part of that is the Internet bringing all kinds of new information. I mean, for example, I don't know. You know, we feel like we're just under a deluge of scandal in the church. I'm dubious that the church is any more scandalous than it's probably ever been. It's just, we certainly know about it now. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's out in the open. It's, we, we have this capacity for communication and information, but that can work in positive ways too. So if people find word of life and they, they live in Kalamazoo or Timbuktu or wherever, and it's, and it's life for them. Well, then I say, hold on to the lifeline until something else comes along, you know, and, I, I don't think that's an adequate response, but I don't know. Week after week, I see it as so important because really, Brad, we've reached the point now where virtually every Sunday, someone from anywhere, you know, California or Massachusetts or wherever, are visiting Word of Life who have become online members. You know, sometimes they'll they'll make the pilgrimage on purpose, but usually it's, you know, they're within 100 miles because of something else, and they decide they're going to come see us. You know, there was last week it was uh, a whole group of young people that were in Kansas City for a wedding, but they, they live in California, and they've become we're life onliners and they show up it's 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 always tearful. I mean, they're they're standing there talking to me after the service, and they're crying, and they're saying, this has kept us Christian. Um, we don't think we'd be Christians today if we hadn't found you. Now, I don't, I'm not the only one. I don't mean that. I just mean there's not enough. <laughs> and if and if you find it online as opposed to in person, then well, hold on, make that a lifeline and hold on until something else comes along. Mm. Well, that that's sort of but uh, but the kindness thing is important. 
Yeah, yeah. I, Against I such, there is no law. <laughs> Abraham Joshua Heschel. He said, when I was when I was young, I admired clever people, smart people. But when I became older, I admired kind people. I resonate with that. At some point, we'll have to talk about the new movie. Yes. Ban the Banshees of, I still haven't got, I can't remember how to say, it, in, in sure, whatever. <laughs> the Banshees. Yeah, the, the new Martin McDonough film, The Banshees of a fictional island off the west coast of Ireland. There's a lot to talk about that there. Mm. And, and, and I don't want to give too much away, but maybe it's based upon an aging, middling musician. You know, he's a fine musician, but he's never going to be great. He's never going to be, you know, Mozart, uh, an aging, middling musician who decides that it's his friendship with people that he views as less than erudite that's holding him back. So he's breaking off his, his friendship. Uh, really what he's doing is blaming other people mm. for the fact that, you know, he's never going to be one of the great ones. Uh, and he becomes unkind and, mm. It, 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 churches need to be a shelter from the storm. They need to be a haven of kindness. They need to be a city of refuge. And I think Word of Life has become that. And it wasn't like a project or a program. We didn't sit around and, you know, dream it up in a staff meeting. Uh, I don't know exactly how it happened, but it just became part of our culture. So, so for example, at Word of Life, you can find pretty much the entire spectrum of political opinion. We're, we're not a monolith one way or the other. We're really not. Um, but what we, what, what we have is a culture of kindness. Now, culture is what you do without even having to think about it. Yeah. You know, that's why you know, like when you're traveling in another culture, you're overseas somewhere. It's exotic, it's fun, it's exciting, but it can also be kind of tiring because you're constantly having to figure out how do they do things here? And coming back home is always a delight because, ah, I know exactly how it works here. I don't have to even think about it. That's culture. And uh, at Word of Life, I, it sounds like we're, I'm boasting, but I'm just, I'm just giving thanks to the Lord that this came about. What the culture, our culture is one of kindness. So, so you, you can believe some, to a certain extent you want politic as long as you're kind. So if you become unkind in the way you hold your politics, the rest of the church, the rest of the community is going to be like, yeah, we're not looked at here. You know, we're, we're not that way. And so seek out kindness. Seek out kind Christians. It sounds, it sounds like syrupy. It sounds kind of lame. But actually, I'll stand by it. I think it really matters. Yeah. Last question is about the future. Uh, so based on your mm. observations and intuitions, uh, what do you foresee or suspect we need to prepare for down the road, let's say in the next few decades? And what I mean by that is, are there things being baked into our future right now uh, that we ought to begin readying ourselves for with a healthy response rather than knee-jerk reactions of everything that surprises now, us. Are you are you seeing things on the horizon we should prepare? Well, first of all, 
First of all, let me quote Niles Bohr, who said, prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. <laughs> <laughs> so keep that in mind. Yeah. What I see as I consider Christianity further into the 21st century in the Western world, I'm, I'm limiting this to, let's say, Western Europe, North America. I don't, beyond that, I don't know. That's not my domain. Um, I see a church chastened. I see a church reduced. I see a church that will eventually have little choice but to be countercultural because there's going to have to be. I, I know that Christianity is really kind of at the heart of a lot of the culture wars in North America right now, United States especially. I don't think it's a war the church is going to win. It's not a war we should fight. I'm not fighting. Uh, but the idea of, of maintaining cultural Christianity as kind of a hegemony and and a dominant force, I, I don't know. I don't know how long it, the battle is going to rage, but I'm pretty sure I know who's going to win, and it's going to be secularism. Because the culture warriors fighting for some sort of, you know, cultural hegemony of Christianity are old and they're going to die. The kind of Christianity that will actually exist when my grandchildren, who are 12 and under, are grown and having their own children, I think it'll be smaller. I, I think it'll be, it'll be viewed a little bit weird. <laughs> Uh, which I think is necessary. I, I think Christianity should always be viewed as pretty odd to those that aren't actually baptized and belong to this, because we do make a lot of strange. I don't know if they're strange. They are outlandish claims that we make. Mm -hmm. I mean, we we actually claim that the logos of God became a human being human flesh, assumed human flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth through a virgin, that he was crucified and buried and raised on the third day. We actually say that that in communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, the cup of blessing which we bless is a participation, a koinonia in the blood of Christ. The bread which we break is a participation in the body of Christ. Those are outlandish claims. I see the church losing the wrong-headed culture war that much of it's trying to wage right now. I don't see it winning. I see it losing, which is Hallelujah. fine with me because well, I don't think we should ever be fighting this battle. Mm -hmm. But the 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 ramifications will be long-lasting. I don't I don't think there's as much difference between Western Europe and North America as we imagine. The culture wars and the presence of civil religion that makes Christianity look more prominent and present than it actually is. I mean, the political phenomenon has been such that you have people who never go to church. They didn't. They never go to church. They don't belong to a church. Church is not a part of their life. Who are now suddenly calling themselves evangelicals? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it's it's a political brand. Yeah, brand a, a political identity. Well, that's 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 papering over when when I'm in Europe. When I'm in Western Europe. I understand that it's secular. I get that. I, it's evident enough on the one hand. On the other hand, I see deep 
historic Christian roots. They may be buried, forgotten, but they're there. They're there. You don't find that in North America. Mm. The United States is an experiment in secular governance. I think that's one. I think that's what will be most remembered about the United States 500 years from now. That it, now the French Revolution they took it further, but the first attempt at secular governance is you know, and I'm not I'm not against that. I mean, I, uh, see, I'm I'm this you know Harawasian. Let let the world do what it does. The church is something other, and we do not persuade by coercion. The church, we persuade by love, spirit, reason, rhetoric, witness, if need be, martyrdom, but never by force. So mm -hmm. I'm fine. I don't care. We have a secular government. It's fine. But what I'm saying is that, that secularism as a philosophy is relatively new in the whole human journey, and that... It, that's really the deep roots of the United States. Mm. And I think that's going to win out ultimately that, that, that we're going to get what Thomas Jefferson and his fellow deists actually wanted. And that was kind of a very rationalistic materialist philosophy where Christianity was tolerated, but no longer flourishing and no longer really prominent. Jefferson hoped for that. And I think he's going to win uh, in, in one sense. And so the church is going to have to be content with being, as it were, and I don't mean literally, but as it were, underground, kind of a, 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 a counterculture movement, which serves Christianity well. I think we are best when we are counterculture, not angry, but simply let, let the world do what the world does. I'm talking about the first 300 years of the church. Let mm -hmm. the world do what the world does. We are going to be something other. And so we let go of the idea that we should change the world. It's not our task to change the world. That, that kind of language has been ubiquitous in evangelical churches for however long, 100 years, longer. You know, change the world, change the world, change the world. We, we, we actually believe that it's our task to change the world. It is not. Our task is nothing more than to be the world already changed by Christ. Christ is the Savior of the world. If the world is going to be saved or changed, if you want to use that word, it's going to have to be Jesus that does it. We're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. And and when we try, when we say, okay, our mission statement is to change the world, then we always reach for the ring of power, and it yep. always corrupts us. Yep. So I think as I look at the future, I see a church that says, you know what? Not our job to change the world. Uh, we have enough to do to simply be that part of the world already being changed by Christ. We will, and we will, if we grow, it'll be by attraction. E either people see in us something beautiful and are attracted to it, or not. But we're not we're not going to have any capacity to persuade other than by beauty, and we have to become beautiful. Some people may hear this as me being very pessimistic. Actually, I'm not. Actually, I think, oh, yeah, I'm ready for that to be more of how we approach living Christian lives. Well, thanks so much, Brian. This is exactly what we were hoping for in these interviews. And um, you've given us food for thought. And of course, you've been an incredible encouragement to me. And I think people will hear this and feel the realism of it and counterintuitively actually be encouraged as well because frankly we're done with this other thing and well we are yeah i mean i mean the people that are listening to us right now are done with that other thing yeah 
Time for some water to wine. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Well, greetings, everybody. We've just heard an interesting conversation with Brian Zond. And now Steve and I are going to have a conversation about one of my questions. Yeah. Uh, it's a little tough to, to hear that I actually had four main questions for him. But uh, the first of those was around definition. Yeah. And that's what we'll look at today. So Because you're, you're going to ask the same four questions of all of your guests, aren't you? Yeah, 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 and we do meander through it in an organic way, but yeah, uh, yeah. we do cover all of these every time. Well, let's let's start. Let's look at the first question, Brad. What was the first question that you're going to put to all of your guests? Okay, so this was around definition and metaphors, and I worded it this way, at least in my mind. Um, first of all, the word "quote deconstruction" is popularly used today, and it's become a bit of a catchphrase for a whole range of experiences that go from voluntary to involuntary, from liberating to traumatic, from personal to social. And all of them seem to be about dismantling or restructuring one's belief systems, whether that's religious or ideological. And if, if we understand it that way, one could experience this kind of process of disorientation, reorientation, and it's both perilous but also as possibilities. So what I what I ask them, and I'll throw over to you now, is in your world, uh, what other words or metaphors might best describe this phenomenon? Because I get a tw I get twitchy about the word deconstruction. I just think it doesn't cover everything very well. But in the, in in your world, the communities you're part of, are there are there metaphors or words that would be good alternatives? And maybe you could give an example of the yeah. or the breakthroughs in that. Well, I mean, I know that you, I know that, that in fact, the, the genesis of a lot of this whole project was we were talking about Kierkegaard together, <laughs> sorry, yes. Kierkegaard. And, uh, and then that kind of led one thing to the next. And I said, why don't you do this program on, for the tent on deconstruction? But my first thought was to go to the Kierkegaard world, which would be, so he in some ways is thought of as a prophet of deconstruction, right? The prophet of like, let's get Christianity against Christendom and let's stop being Christians and start being true again. And for him, it was all about honesty. So, so he, he didn't see to me, the word would be become honest rather than okay. become deconstructed. Yes. But he had a very famous line where he said, I'm not trying to convert anyone. I'm not trying to reform Christianity. I'm not trying to make anyone a Christian. I'm not trying to make Christians Christian again. All I want is honesty. I just want people to stop, admit where they're at, and then I don't even know what will come after that. But we're not even honest right now. And for him, he's like, all I want is honesty. And is authenticity yeah. a word for him as well? Yeah, or because because you know you kind of persist in living a false life, like you persist in going along with a with a group or a movement. And it and it's and it's you know there's the cognitive dissonance and there's the 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 bifurcation that comes from trying to say one thing but not not feeling it or knowing it in your heart and he's like you, you, the inner and the outer have to match okay and, so then it's a pushback against hypocrisy too right yeah it's a pushback against hypocrisy but also against i mean from the christian point of view you know he said you know um 
the Christianity, we just have to be honest that the, the, the vision laid out in the New Testament bears almost zero relationship to the apparatus of Christendom and Christianity today. Yeah, Unless unrecognizable, just right? <laughs> just yeah, unrecognizable. Yeah. And in fact, in some ways, it's like actively opposed. Like the, the two are actively opposed to each other. Especially and he said, in his world, right? <laughs> right. And he's just like, I don't even know how to fix it. He was saying, I, just, I don't even, I'm not pretending I can fix it. I'm just saying, let's admit it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just be honest, and then we can maybe see where we are from there. And I think so. To me, that's what I wonder whether the deconstruction it operates as a moment of honesty and clarity, and perhaps, and people just finally come to the end of saying, "I can't call circles squares anymore. I just can't do it." And and the, that's what's being deconstructed, right? Is the is is really the the this the delusion. <laughs> that you can call circles squared, but but he's doing something positive, not just dismantling them. Well, it's positive because a lie is bad. You can't tell a lie without doing some harm, right? I mean, I've th I'm thinking of the critical race theory kind of stuff, and the, the, these people that just don't want to ever even talk or admit, you know, that <laughs> that, uh, yeah, yeah, that their yeah. culture is built on structural racism, and that to even talk about it is some sort of thought crime that you have to ban the books, <laughs> and, and you just think, well, this is just. You're just living in an absolute false world. Like uh, at the very least, like is, is just being honest. So is your world so fragile that just being honest will destroy it? You know, you, you got to think how, how worthless is the edifice that you're living in if simple honesty will destroy it? Wow. Yeah. Okay. So what are the pitfalls of being honest? Well, you hurt people's feelings. Yeah. It's not comfortable. Yeah, uh, it's not nostalgic. You can't kind of wallow in it. Also, also, by the way, n none of us know the truth. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. We don't. I mean, you can you can be honest, but you also have to always put a little asterisk and say, as far as I can tell at this moment in time, this is what I think to be sure. True. So there is like a the, the deconstruction. You might also get like crucified or shot to death. That could be a pitfall of being honest. Well, yeah, because you're always what you're honest about is how um, how how flimsy and and uh, fragile the culture is that you were born into, yeah. and how it's based on lies. And cultures don't like being told they're based on lies. And oh, so that's a threat, isn't it? Yeah. They'll kill the messenger, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, me, it can be costly. Kind of to, uh, yeah. Well, it's costly because it's like the Matrix, like that guy that. <laughs> wanted to go back in. He's like, I regret figuring out what the system was. I actually wish I could just go back and eat steak. And even though it's a computer simulation, I wish I didn't know, you know? Right, right. There's that moment. So that's costly. Yeah. It's costly because Prophet is not welcome in his hometown. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, hometowns is where your family lives and where your friends live, where everyone knows your name. Yeah. And so that's costly to not be welcome amongst the, the people you you used to call home yeah yeah but there's also possibilities then right like if we're willing to weigh the cost and we understand what the potential pitfalls are and that you don't just tell somebody um <laughs> you know facts that aren't loving like i hate your hairdo or something but um but there's also breakthroughs to be had like real if a person's willing to count the cost and 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 so to speak, pick up that cross. What what do you think the best possible outcomes are for an honest conversation or speaking truth to power, etc.? Well, I mean, 
you lose some people, but you also gain others, right? Like you lose when you stick your head up a, a, over the parapet, you might get shot at, but you also can look around and see other people sticking their heads up at the parapet as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Or if you're carrying the cross and you look around and you see other people also carrying crosses, like when the when the system sort of wants to crucify you because you're refusing to march in lockstep with it. Um, you do lose one group of people because they eject you from society, but you do find all the other people that were also ejected. <laughs> yeah, at first that could be very lonely, but it does seem to me that it picks up steam at some point and you realize you're not the only one. Well, how many do you need? I mean, this is this is part of Kierkegaard's thing. He said, you know, we're always, uh, uh, we always <laughs> forget so quality with quantity, right? So we're always confusing those two. So we think, oh, I've got thousands of people around me and he's even specifically talking about Christianity here. So Christendom, you know, thousands of people shouting Jesus's name in unison and singing the same songs and uh, reading from the same book. And uh, and we associate that that number with quality. Right. Well, right. It must be true because thousands of people are doing it at the same time. But that's not quality. That's just quantity. And uh, and and what if what if you only needed 12 or two or three or two or three, right? Yeah. I was thinking about that too. There's this, uh, uh, Perry's on, um, Brian's wife. Uh, she read me a paragraph from a Enneagram book where she said, you know, there's a, a kind of, there's a kind of temperament and it, she saw in me. And that is, um, I have no, I have no, I'm kind of a limitless capacity for how many haters I can have. As long as I have two or three people who I want to be like, who believe in me and love me. Like, so I think of, you know, Eugene Peterson became a friend at one point. And, and then I realized these other voices don't matter so much now because Eugene loves me and he's the kind of man I want to become. You have two or three and, and you call that a posse. <laughs> and, and, um, and that feels like quality to me because it's especially based, it's character focused and it's on these spiritual fathers or mothers that, that um, kind of are a good measure of what's, what's right. Do you think that that could be a quality, a measure of quality then is that honesty won't destroy that friendship? Oh, definitely. Like, so um, in fact, for me, it's essential. So I, because I have a, I have a nice little circle of friends, then you can get accused of being sort of in an echo chamber. But I, I've always, I've made a commitment that those who are in my closest circle have to love me enough to be able to tell me when my fly is down in public and to tell me when I'm off track and to, and to, to love me enough to say, there is nothing in it for me to confront you right now, but I'm going to, cause I love you. And, um, and I have, I have definitely found that, especially in my 12-step sponsor. I mean, she is, she'll take a strip off me. And I know it's 100% about a deep love for my heart and a care for my family. So Yeah. And the friendship, far, far from being destroyed, it, it gets, it get, does it kind of emerge stronger after every bout of honesty? Oh, yeah. Because the, the, the wisdom bears, bears its fruit, right? And then so when you see the, the, the good fruit of that, that your trust level goes up even higher and you can become even more vulnerable and they can become even more forthright. But there also does tend to be a moment, especially with this friend I was just mentioning, where 
they, they know when to stop when when to stop assaulting your ego. Well, they'll go after your ego, but they'll they'll take care of your heart. And if they see like honesty is actually beginning to bruise my heart, they'll back off a little bit. And 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 they're like, you know, the thing I wanna I wanna dismantle in you is egoism. It's not it's not to demoralize your personhood. They're very good at that. That's the kind of people you want in your life. I mean, this is where I mean, let's. I know I know we probably need to I probably need to let you go now, but this is where the idea of like honesty uh, in an immature person's hands becomes a weapon to destroy. You know, I'm just going to kick it all down, and if 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 I can't have it, you can't either, right? You just use it to destroy people and to to piss in their pool. Or, yeah, that's right. Or you could do it the way Kierkegaard tried to do it, which was to use honesty to rescue people from bad systems. So uh, he good. wasn't trying to destroy them. He was trying to sort of forge meaningful relationships, whereas before they were living in kind of false, false relationships. So right. So not just a cynical thief of hope, but somebody who can actually yeah, set you on the path. He's not cynical. He's not a spoiled teenager. He's not somebody who's just read Nietzsche for the first time. <laughs> and is, you know, he's, he's, he's like, he's not doing that. You know, he's trying to use honesty in the sense of the truly human, the authentic. Yeah. So that would be close to your to your sponsor or to your to Eugene Peterson or those kind of people. I Absolutely. Think. Yeah. Honesty to build up, not destroy. What a great definition. <laughs> I'm going to go with that. The, uh, Isaiah 58, the rebuilder of, you know, broken cities, the one who's lifting up ancient ruins. Yeah, it's very good. All right. Thanks, Stephen. We'll get back oh, to you. Thanks, Brad. We'll talk to you next week. You betcha. Can't wait. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com. 